Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Would you stand with me as we read God's word? I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words. We ask and pray that you would teach us from them. Help us to understand them in your heart today. Thank you for our fathers. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> it is Father's Day today. So here's a quick Father's Day story for you. One night, a wife found her husband standing over their newborn baby's crib. Silently, she watched him as he stood looking down at the sleeping infant. She saw in his face a mixture of emotions, disbelief, doubt, delight, amazement, enchantment. He would stand back, shake his head, and say, amazing, while smiling from ear to ear. Touched by his unusual display and the deep emotions it aroused, her eyes glistened as she slipped her arms around him. A penny for your thoughts, she whispered in his ear. Isn't it amazing, he replied, when you take the time and really look close, how can anyone make a crib like that for only $45.99? <laughs> That's a dad joke. Happy Father's Day. You know, I'm so glad that you're here today. Did you know that according to LifeWay Research Group, Father's Day is the holiday, the holiday, with the single lowest average church attendance, statistically lower than that of Labor Day, Memorial Day, and even the 4th of July. Well, I'm so thankful. We had a great crowd in the early service and a tremendous crowd here. I can easily say this is the largest attended Father's Day we've ever had. And so uh, I'm thankful for that. But it, isn't it interesting why attendance is so low on Father's Day traditionally in churches across the United States and so big on Mother's Day? Well, you may be thinking, and I don't know who did this, who made this decision that Mother's Day should be in May when the weather is beautiful and the kids are still in school and so they gotta be here. And then Father's Day is in June during summer vacation where everybody has gone on vacation and it's blistering hot. Maybe that's why people are not in church on Father's Day because they're on vacation. It may be. It's not a vacation thing. It may be that you just didn't get your dad anything for Father's Day. Moms tend to get more gifts than dads, I'm told. And so uh, maybe you just went in this morning and said, Happy Father's Day. What do you want for Father's Day? And dad probably said something like, or may have said something like, I, I would just for once like to sleep in. And so you didn't go to church because you wanted to sleep in. Now I'm preaching to the choir here. You're, you're the ones that are here. So thank you for being here, by the way. But it is interesting especially when you consider that Mother's Day tends to be the day with the third highest service attendance, only after Easter and Christmas. We all show out in force for Mother's Day. And it may be that, again, pastors typically uh, write sermons that commend our mothers and then scold our dads on Father's Day. I don't know why we preachers do that. I'm not gonna do that today uh, much. 
Um, but today, I, I want to say a big thank you to all of our dads raising your kids to be faithful in the church and to be an example to, uh, to all, of, uh, all of those around you. In fact, I want to spend time today giving thanks for our dads and specifically giving thanks to our dads. That is for the glory of God, and we're going to look at the greatest father that ever was, our Heavenly Father, as an example today, among others. But I want us to be thankful for our dads and thankful to our dads directly. So today's message is entitled, Thank You, Dad. Thank You, Dad. I use this picture uh, almost every year. It's a favorite picture of mine, counting the candles as best I can. I think I'm seven years old there. Is that right? Seven? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and that's my dad there. Now, my dad was a barber, and in the early 70s, when this was taken, um, uh, he felt that barbers needed hair. He, he wore a toupee. Uh, my dad didn't have much hair, and there he is in his toupee. It, men wore toupees all the time back in the 70s. And uh, this was a happy time. Uh, my mother, uh, uh, to my knowledge, I don't ever remember her buying a cake. That's what rich people did. All of her cakes for all of our birthdays were homemade and she would ask us what we would want and I wanted cupcakes one year so she made me those delicious cupcakes. Uh, I would love to have some of my mom's cupcakes today. Anyway, um, just a, a moment this morning to say thank you to our dads directly. Thank you, dad. I'm going to share with you four reasons why you should thank your dad today. Now, I realize not all of your dads were as great as mine and as great as you would like. In fact, for a few of you, a few of you here, you didn't have a good dad at all. You had a bad dad. And if that's the case, then I want you to apply this message to your father in heaven. And you have a heavenly father that never disappoints. First, I want you to thank your father for his faith. Thank your dad for his faith. If he's a man of faith, be sure to tell him that you appreciate that because not all dads are men of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 is my illustration for today. And this is, uh, by the way, uh, go ahead and go back to the, the picture before we look at that. Okay, thank you. It may be that we pass or scold dads so much because so often the moms in the Bible are great moms and the dads in the Bible are bad dads. There's a lot of uh, illustration for that. We've been going through 1 Samuel uh, on Wednesday nights as we've studied the life of Eli, the prophet. Do you remember him, the high priest? Good, good high priest. Bad dad. In fact, God judged him because he was such a bad dad. His two sons were some of the most wicked, two of the most wicked people in the Old Testament. And that's saying a lot because they're really bad people in the Old Testament. His sons were no, I mean, they were terrible. I don't even want to tell you what all they did as priests. Uh, it was disgraceful. And then uh, Eli, one of the things I think he did well is he raised Samuel to be far better than his son, Samuel, young Samuel, was a godly man, grew up to be a very godly man. We found out just this last week, Samuel also had two sons and they were also no good. So we have 
descriptions where fathers were not very successful in the Bible, but we do have examples of godly fathers that did exactly what they were supposed to do. We think about the father of, or the stepfather of Jesus, Joseph himself, who we see from the time that Jesus was conceived through the Holy Spirit that Joseph did what he was supposed to do. He did what was loving and what was kind and what was responsible, and he was a godly man. But another example we find in Hebrews, and it's an Old Testament example, of one of the very first really, really good dads, and it was Noah. All right, go to that uh, passage. Now, this is chapter 11, the famous faith chapter. The, the chapter in its entirety is illustration after illustration from the Old Testament, mostly, not entirely, but mostly Old Testament, about godly people, people who were uh, 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 patriarchs of faith. And one of those was Noah. And it says, by faith, Noah, when warned about the things not yet seen, what was not yet seen? The flood, yes. And so when warned about the flood, things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark, listen to this part, to save his family. He was a man of faith and his faith literally saved his family. In fact, he, he definitely qualified as the best dad on the planet because after the flood, he was the only dad on the planet unless his kids had, uh, had sons as well, all the other dads were dead. And his children, I assume, looked out the door or the windows of the ark and thought, my dad is awesome because <laughs> we're not dead. We have a boat. Nobody else has a boat. Their dads didn't build them a boat to save their life. My dad did. And by faith, Noah didn't build this ark for a week or a month or a year or even a decade. He built it for a century, worked on that ark in faith that God was going to deliver them and deliver his children and save them, which God did. Now that's a pretty good example. So thank God for the faith of your dad. Whatever faith he had, if he was a man of faith, be thankful for that. Did you know that according to data collected by Promise Keepers in, in the Baptist Press, if a father does not go to church, even if his wife does, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. One in 50. If, he, if the dad doesn't go to church, even if the mom does, one child in 50. If a father does go to church regularly, regardless of what the mother does, sorry ladies, Statistically, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will attend adults, uh, will attend church as adults. So without the dad going to church, one in 50 kids end up going to church when they're adults. With dad in church, three-quarters of them, up to 75% of the children will end up going to church. Your influence on your children, men, is astounding. Spiritually speaking, Ken Hemphill uh, tells the story of what took place at his church when he was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Norfolk. He was uh, out on the sidewalk welcoming people as they got out of their cars to come into church. And he noticed about three cars back, 
there was a father and a son coming up. And the father had a teenage son, and the father was wearing what looked like a golf shirt, and apparently he was dropping his teenage son off to church so that he could then drive off and go play golf. Wow, that's a bad example. Well, the teenage son was protesting, he says, and was giving his dad a hard time and said he didn't want to go to church. And his dad responded and said, well, when I was growing up, my daddy took me to church every Sunday and you're going to go to church as well. Then the boy replied, well, it doesn't look like it did you any good for you, did it? So men, you have to be a spiritual example in your family first and foremost. It will affect your children all their life. Even if your child grows up and rejects the gospel, rejects the Bible, and rejects church, I believe if you grow your child up in church, the day will come, God will bring them to conviction, and if they have that firm foundation of having grown up in church and seeing you as an example, dads, they have a father that they can go to, a heavenly father that you've trained them to do. When both parents statistically attend Bible study, that is Sunday school, for example, uh, in addition to the Sunday service, 72% of their children attend Sunday school when they're grown. When only the father attends Sunday school, 55% of the kids still attend when they're grown. When only the mother attends Sunday school, only 15% of the children attend when they're grown. So the difference between 15% and 55% between the mother and the father. That's because men, children look to you to be the spiritual example in the home. God has designed you to be the leader. And let me tell you about these statistics. Statistics don't care about the woke movement. They don't care about what's politically correct. And the woke movement could say, well, mom is just important, and she is. The mom can be a leader in her house, and she can. But statistics don't lie. The truth is God ordained you men to be spiritual leaders in your home. And when you do, it matters. It makes a difference. And they end up going to church more. When neither parent attends Sunday school, only 6% of the children ever attend when they're grown. Another survey found that if a child is the first person in a household to become a Christian, the first one in the whole house to, to come to faith in Christ, if it's the child, only three, there's only a 3.5% probability everyone in the house will follow. So 3% if a child comes to faith. If the mother is the first in the household to become a Christian, there's a 17% probability that everyone in the house will follow. However, when the father is first, if he's the first one in the family to get saved, there's a 93% probability that everyone else in the household will get saved. 93%. That is remarkable. The influence that you have spiritually in your home. Here's the point of all of these statistics. Dad, your impact on the faith of your family is amazing. Secondly, thank your father for his strength. Thank him for his faith and thank him for his strength. The Israelites, bless you, the Israelites when they were delivered by God, way back in Deuteronomy, God says this wonderful thing to them. 
And he shares with them how he's related to them. And he has had this relationship with them in God's perspective as a father. Now that's radically different than any of the false gods of the day. The God of Ra, the Egyptian God, or the God Dagon, the Philistine God, or the God of the Baals, the Canaanite gods. None of those gods are seen like a father. They didn't even conceive of a God that way. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was seen as a father, not just by the people, but by God himself. And so God says this in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 31. Listen to what he says. It says, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. That's a beautiful statement, is it not? It says, just like a father carries his son. Now, I've been to Disney World. <laughs> I, my children are not tiny anymore. My baby son is six foot three and outweighs me by 40 pounds. Uh, but there was a time where my kids were smaller. They were big enough to walk, but not that far. Do you remember that? Some of you are living that right now. Chris preached last week. I enjoy hearing Chris's stories about his, his daughter, his toddler daughter, because I've been there, and many of you have as well. You go somewhere like Six Flags or somewhere else like that, Disneyland or wherever, back when I went to Disneyland, and uh, they would get tired. They, they couldn't go as far as mom and dad. And so they ended up on my shoulders sometimes. You carry them because they are too weak to carry themselves. God describes himself in his relationship with his people as that way. I carried you just like a father carries his son. I told you before that when I was a little boy, my oldest brother, Drew, um, he had a terrible uh, illness and nearly killed him. I, I don't remember exactly what the illness was, but it paralyzed him or, or it made him unable to walk for a very long time. The doctor said he would never walk again. He was very frail and it affected his nervous system. It, it, it devastated his nervous system. We went out for Halloween and I don't know I've told this story before, but we went out for Halloween. Do you remember Halloween in the early 70s? Those of you who were alive in the early 70s, my, my wife was not here in the States or anywhere else in the early 70s. She won't remember. But back in the 70s, especially the early 70s, when I was a kid, first of all, we got our, our uh, Halloween outfit at the dime store. And it probably cost about a dime. There were these cheap plastic masks that you put on. They had one little strip that was elastic and two little eye holes. You couldn't see a thing. And, and whatever character you were, a hundred different characters, but it was all the same mask. It was just painted differently. And so you wore that mask. We didn't have uh, the plastic pumpkins and all of the nice things. We, we were poor. We couldn't afford that. Our, our Halloween bag was, of course, a, a Winn-Dixie or a Buddy's uh, uh, grocery sack. Back, back in the day, they were made out of paper. You remember that? And normally the grocery sacks were used as our trash cans at the house. Uh, but on Halloween, we would take up Buddy's trash bag, as our, which was great because they were big and you could just get lots of stuff in them. And we had neighbors that would make popcorn balls and caramel apples. Again, this is another generation ago. 
you don't see that anymore. But we had a lot of t fun at Halloween. Another thing is, it was a mom thing to do. Mom went with, with us. Back, this is this is during the pre-Oprah generation. You know, dads, you earned the living. You went home and you were tired. And many moms didn't work. Now, my mom was a school teacher, but mom usually took us around trick-or-treating. Dad did not. We were out on the street trick-or-treating, but my brother, again, who was unable to walk because he had had this illness, he couldn't go with us. And we turned around, and their dad was bringing my brother on his shoulders. And he was so happy. He was so excited. This is exactly the description of God the Father here. As a father, from God, as a father carries his son all the way. He says, I carried you. So thank God for your father's strength. Thank your father for his strength. Third, thank your father for his discipline. Thank your father for his discipline. Now, I know this is hard because there's never a time when I was a kid, I went to my dad and thanked him, nor has my ch three children ever come to me and said, Dad, thank you so much for disciplining us. That's awesome. But I've learned that if you're a loving parent, you will discipline your children. And if you don't care about your children, one of, those, one of the ear signs that you don't really love your kids at all is you don't even bother to discipline them. You just let them do whatever they want. And we live in a world like that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, it says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? Now, the implication there is any loving father, of course, disciplines his, his son, just like our Heavenly Father disciplines us. I heard a story about a father who told his son that if he was disobedient, if he didn't do what he was told to do, he would end up sleeping in the attic of their home with only bread and water for his supper if he disobeyed. Sure enough, the young boy disobeyed. Now, my dad, to my knowledge in my life, never bluffed. And as a parent, I've learned the dangers of bluffing to your children. And this father didn't typically bluff. And so when he told his son, look, if you disobey, you're going to spend the night up in the attic all alone where it's dark with only bread and water. I think he thought his son would snap to it and do what he was told, but he didn't. He disobeyed. And so his, his, um, his father struggled with that. He did send him up to the attic, but his father could not eat himself. He had no appetite. He had his son on his mind and on his heart. His, his son didn't know it. His wife said, I know what you're thinking, but you must not bring the boy from the attic. It would cause him to disobey again. He would have no respect for your word. You must not cheapen your relation as his father by failing to keep your word. And her husband knew she was right. The husband replied, you're right. I will not break my promise. I told him he had to spend the night in the attic with just bread and water. And that's exactly what he's going to do. But then he said, he's so lonely up there. He kissed his wife goodnight, climbed up in the attic ate bread and drank water with his son. And when the child went to sleep on the hard boards of the attic, 
His father's arm was his pillow. That's how God the Father is with you and me. That's how my dad was, strong but caring. Which brings me to perhaps the most important point. Thank your father for his compassion. Now you could put the word love in here. In the Hebrew, it meant the same. Love and compassion was basically synonymous. Thank your father for his compassion. In Luke chapter 15, verse 20, it tells that famous story of the prodigal son and how the son had left his father and squandered all of his money. And when he came to his senses, he decided he would go back to his dad, hoping somehow that his dad might forgive him and accept him, even as a servant. And the Bible says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. There's that word, filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is a parable told by Christ. And who's the father in this parable? Who's he talking? He's talking about God the Father. Jesus knew God the Father, his father, better than anybody. He'd been with him for an eternity in heaven. And here Jesus, so if Jesus describes God the Father in a particular way, you want to listen to that. He's not just speaking theoretically or theologically. He's speaking personally. That's his dad. That's his father. And he said, let me tell you how our heavenly, my father treats you. In a, in a moment of repentance, an out of regret, and a willingness to come back to our heavenly father. It says his father saw him. Instead of saying, look, it, it, the father saw him and couldn't wait to scold him. Couldn't wait to condemn him. Couldn't wait to judge him. It doesn't say that. It says the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Isn't that beautiful? In his book called Cure for the Common Life, Max Lucado talks about the time the bank sent him, an, sent him an overdraft notice on the checking account of one of his daughters. <laughs> so his daughters, one of his daughters bounced some checks and he got the overdraft notice. He says this, I encourage my college age girls to monitor their accounts even so they sometimes overspent. What should I do, he asked. Send her an angry letter. Admonition might help her later, but it won't satisfy the bank. Phone and tell her to make a deposit. Might as well tell a fish to fly. I know her liquidity, Licato says. Zero. She didn't have any money. So what should I do, he remarks. Transfer the money from my account to hers? Seemed to be the best option, he says. I, I could replenish her account and pay the overdraft fee as well. I could replenish her account and I could pay the overdraft fee as well. Since she calls me dad, Licato said, I did what dads do. I covered my daughter's mistake. When he told her she was overdrawn, she said she was sorry. Still, she offered no deposit. She was broke. She had one option. Dad, would you? Honey, Licato interrupted. I already have. 
He met her need before she knew she had one. So it is with our Heavenly Father. Long before we knew we needed grace, He made an ample deposit. Before we knew we needed a Savior, we already had one. And when we ask Him for mercy, He answers, Dear, dear child, I have already given it. As King David was getting older, we find out in 2 Samuel that he desired so badly to build a temple for his God. It had been in a tabernacle, a tent. In fact, in, I'm not going to read this part, but in, in the, earlier in the passage, he says to Nathan the prophet, he said, is it, is it fair that I live in this palace of cedar while God's house is still in a tent? So he asked Nathan to intercede for him and asked God if it would be okay if he could build him a grand temple. And you know what God said? He said, no, no. In fact, he went one step further. He said, David, you will not build my temple, but I will let your son build it, which is interesting. There was reason for that. God said there was blood on David's hands and and so he chose Solomon, David's son, one day to build it. So he said no. But in the midst of that, saying no, God made David the most beautiful promise. And it is beautiful. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, our passage for today, this is God saying to David, when you die, this is what I'm going to do. I will be his father. Speaking of, San, of, of, of Solomon, he says, when, when you die, he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And let me stop right there. That is remarkable to me. For God to say to you, men, or to me as a father, look, when you die, I want you to know I'm going to watch over your children I will be a father to them, and they will be my children. What an amazing promise that is. Isn't that beautiful? And he says, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men with floggings inflicted by men. In other words, I'm going to discipline him as a father would. Verse 15, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And again, God is saying, look, David, I know you saw me withdraw my hand from Saul before you because Saul betrayed God because of his ego. God says to David, I'm not going to do that with Solomon, your son. I make you this promise. I will never leave him. I will love him. I will be his father and I will never leave him. In fact, he says, verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure for how long? Forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, when God says forever, he means forever. Now, what is he actually telling David here? How did God establish his throne forever? Through Christ. So God here is telling David something that David cannot even wrap his head around. And there are things like that. I know that I've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, but I can't really wrap my head around that fully. I know that I have been given power and victory over death, but I can't wrap my head around that fully. I accept it, 
But I can't fully comprehend that. I know that you and I, through the mercy of God, through the blood of Christ, if we're believers in Christ, we'll get to go to heaven for eternity. And I know there's a description in Revelation about heaven and its beauty, but I can't even begin to wrap my head around the majesty of heaven and the presence of God that I'll get to see my Savior all the time in heaven. I can't comprehend that. I know it to be true and I can't wait to see it, but I guarantee when the day comes, we're going to go, oh, wow. I had no idea. Here, God is saying to David, David doesn't wrap his head around it. My own son is going to come from your family line. And the kingdom that I'm talking about is the everlasting kingdom through Jesus. He doesn't know that. You and I get to see that. We get to read that. But that's the beauty of the promise. He says, David, the answer is no. But I'm going to be the father to your son. I will always love him. And his kingdom will be forever. It's shocking to me how much I took my own father for granted. He was always there. And you, you know, I, I knew the math as, as many of you did as well. I knew my father wasn't going to be on this earth forever. But I couldn't wrap my head around this idea that God was, that, that excuse me, that my father was going to die and he wouldn't be here anymore. I would never see him again on this earth until after he was long gone. Then I got it. And I just took him for granted. He was quiet. He was a disciplinarian because, again, in pre-Oprah age, as I call it, the World War II veterans, they tended to be quiet. They left the, the counseling to the mom and the loving to the mom, and they provided for the dad, provided for the family, and they disciplined when we were bad. But I always felt loved by my father. But we didn't really converse with him much on a personal level. There's so many questions I'd have for him if he were here today. There were different times. But I do know this, my dad was a man of faith. He was a man of strength. He disciplined me, but he also had compassion and he loved me. Now I realize those are the exact qualities that God the Father has for us. So thank you dads for modeling Christ to us. Pray with me. Lord, as we come to you today, we want to say thank you. You are the perfect father. Perfect in your strength. Perfect in your compassion and your love. Thank you. In your wisdom and your love, you gifted us with fathers. Now, I know there are some here whose fathers fell way short. They were a disappointment or they weren't around at all. But everyone here, everyone here has a heavenly father that loves them. You have not abandoned them. For those of us who had to have the, the privilege of having dads that were around, that were good men, oh, thank you. For those who had the privilege of having a father that was a man of faith 
thank you. Oh, thank you. Loved us enough to take us to church, loved us enough to discipline us, and had compassion for us. Thank you. Now, Father, for the dads that are here today, I pray that you would help us be like you. Help us to be men of faith and not expect our wives to do it or the church to do it or somebody else to do it. Help us to be the model of faith for our families because we hold such great power in our hands when we draw our children to you. Life-changing, course-altering, God-honoring. Help us to be men of faith. Forgive us for those times that we've been too harsh on our children or too easy. Help us to discipline our children, but help us to do it in love. Help us to be compassionate whenever we can so that our children understand you better when they see you living in us. Can I challenge you this morning as you sit there and pray right now, would you be willing to go to God and say, God, for all the good qualities that were in my dad, thank you. If your dad is still alive today, I encourage you to call him or tell him after the service, thank you, dad. Thank you for being my dad. It is not an easy job. It may be God is calling you uh, to come get on your knees and thank him for being such a good heavenly father. Maybe God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church, make a public decision and say, hey, we'd like to be members here. <coughs> or you want to give your life to Christ. You want to have that eternal life I was talking about a while ago. And you want to come up and say, Pastor, I want to be baptized. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. And we'll talk to you about that. If God is leading right now, here's your opportunity. As you continue to pray, would everyone stand?